expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Here we are once again. It's episode 74 of Down and Nerdy Podcast. And apparently this past weekend we found out that more people want to be part of the Rogue Nation and not Marvel's first family. Yeah, because, you know, the get-togethers are kind of awkward, especially when they're still in high school. And then you got, you know, you always have that drunk uncle who's a director and he just ruins everything for everybody. It is a rocky relationship. It is a horrible relationship. That is for sure. I'm James with them alongside... The Merkel one arm, Nick Pataglia. And we're so happy the, the, the way things are going right now. And so many new people tuning into the show. We really appreciate that. Things have gone very well for us. And we've said it a million times. Without you guys, we're not even here. We're just sitting in a room, just a couple guys talking comics and movies and stuff like that. That's what we'd be doing. But we get to share it with you. And we're glad that you're enjoying what we're putting out there. We appreciate that. Well, what's cool is, you know, we go on the sites, we check out the stats of, you know, how people are visiting, how people are listening. And then you used to see, like, Vietnam, you know, France, you know, Italy, everywhere, all the world, all over the U.S., you know. It's cool, you know, walking the bobs over Fancy Escape, you know, to pick up my pole when I can. And, you know, he'd be like, hey, I saw, you know, you got these new listeners and everything else. Congrats on that. You know, it's a really cool thing, you know. And, uh, it's it, no, it's it really is awesome. So I want to thank you all the fans. You know those of you who are going to our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/downnerdy. You're going to our Twitter at downnerdy757, and uh, even you know all you know just all over everywhere on social media. You know and, and hitting us up on social media, just tell us what you like about the show, and just tell us how big of a fan you are. You know it gives us really something cool to to share and to bring with you every week so again thank you for everybody who's been supporting us you know every week and since day one it's really awesome and we've we told you that we were going to have a lot of great special guests on the show i feel like we've delivered on that we had tom king on the show last week and this week we've got somebody very special as well because you know we've talked about valiant's book of death we actually have the writer for book of death robert venditti on the show this week Exactly. He's also a New York Times bestselling author as well. And again, it's really awesome to have Robert on the show this week to talk about Book of Death and Exo Man and War, all the great stuff he's doing. We're going to pick his brain a little bit about the Valiant film slate as well, his thoughts on that going forward. And I mean, I tell you, Book of Death has just been amazing. It's been an amazing series so far. Great way to kick it off. And I really love it. Again, Valiant just shows here's how you, you want to end your universe. Here's how you end it. You end it the right way, and then you get the great art that just dictates, just shows the brutality of the series. It's a really great thing, and I can't wait to talk to Robert. It's amazing, too, because it seems like ever since Book of Death came out, everything's sort of falling into place with Valiant now because that went to a second printing, and then you also had um, Bloodshot Reborn, yep. the, uh, or was the fall of Bloodshot? One of the Bloodshot fall- books had to go for another second printing as well. Yep. So all of a sudden, now you're getting all these second printings for these Valiant books because there's a lot more eyes on you, and, and I'm telling you, when we were reviewing it on the show, we said this is how you do a big-time arc like this. Yes. Oh, and definitely. They've done it well, and it's starting to show, and I can't wait to see where... We're only on issue two. It's not even out yet. We'll talk more about issue two as, as time goes on. It's not going to come out until next week. But we've already got that excitement about it, and it's already translating into other books, and I think that's fantastic. 
Yeah, man. I mean, again, it just goes to show, you know, when you have the right tools and you have the right people doing, you know, and working with you, things, great things can happen. And Robert and everybody over at Valiant has just done an amazing job. You know, prior even prior to their announcement that they they're going to have their own film universe, you know, everything we've read, like, for example, uh, we have at the office, we have the Exo Man of War graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cool thing is I picked it up and it's about 60 some odd pages. I read that in one sitting. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to put their books down. Yeah. And I think that goes for a lot of the Valiant stuff that uh, that we've read so far. You just can't put it down. And I think that's the mark of a good comic. But speaking of comics, you know what's coming next. We've got two new comics. We're going to review them for you on what we're reading. That's right here on Down and Nerdy. Hey, this is comic book artist Matt Slay, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well said, time nerds. We got those long boxes, and we discussed what we're reading. Of course, this segment always brought to you by the fine folks over at Fantasy Escape, Comics and Cards, and Aragorn Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the plethora of goodies he has for your nerd heart. And James, I'm going to have you go first this week, and uh, you did a comic that, uh, let's just say, two of your love interests kind of play a role in it. Uh, of course, and I've, it's been a while since I've gone back to my DC roots, so I feel like I had to go back and do that this week because I read Harley Quinn and Power Girl. Number two it was written by, of course, the lovely Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmati. Justin Gray joins as the guest writer on this one as well. Art by everybody in the art industry, actually. It's actually <laughs> uh, Stefan Rowe and Elliot Fernandez, colors by Paul Mounts and Alex Sinclair, and then letters by John J. Hill. Now, if you read the first issue, this is strictly a comedy book. I want to get that out of the way right now because basically, if you read the Harley regular Harley Quinn series, Harley Quinn uh, finds an unconscious Power Girl and she's lost her memory. She has no idea who she is or where she is. And Harley tricks her into thinking that they're a superhero team together. So this leads them being teleported to another planet. And basically now they're trying to save this planet full of hippies from a evil being called Orth Odiax. I'm hoping it's I'm the, saying that right. It's the government, man. Seriously, it's it's all hippied out. Like peace and love <laughs> and all that. Seriously. Is it, is it scratch- Afros, Afros, and everything. Are the pages scratch and sniff hemp? No. Well, remember the Harley Quinn annual was. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the series isn't over yet, so let's give it time. Uh, no, they're also trying to find a way to get back home. And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Vartox is the leader of this plant that they're trying to save, who's apparently Power Girl's husband. We really don't know for sure. There's just so many things that can make you laugh in this book. Uh, one of the robots that tries to kill them is called Killy McCappybot 2.0. <laughs> So every time I saw that, you I had to it. laugh. Oh, you gotta love it! Like when in books, you have certain characters that are kind of there for comic relief or, or anything really, and just their name really just describes like their entire bio in one, you know, yeah. one name. It's yeah. so great. What I love about this about this particular team up story is that it's the perfect. Okay, Harley Quinn is not the serious one. She's the loose cannon comedian kind of thing. And then Power Girl is the one that is serious and is annoyed by basically everything that's going on. And she does a lot of the work, too. Like, there's a scene in this in this comic where, of course, they're battling aliens. And it actually felt like the first uh, Avengers movie where yeah. they're just pouring out and there's aliens everywhere, everywhere. The only difference is, is one person was fighting them because Harley was trying to get everybody else 
to safety, which is also ironic. <laughs> there was another really funny part about this book where it looks like Power Girl's about to get captured, and then she's saved by this group called the XGF. Right. Now, you're saying to yourself, what does the XGF stand for? Well, apparently it stands for the Ex-Girlfriends Force. Oh, shit. So it's it kind of like Scott Pilgrim-esque in the 70 Alexis. Exactly. It, it's it's a group of Vartox's ex-girlfriends who think that Power Girl is jealous of them, basically. <laughs> so it's it's very funny and weird. They're all fighting with each other. Uh, so it was, it was just a lot of fun. It turns out that uh, something actually happens to Vartox at the end. We don't want to spoil it if you want to read the series. Uh, but it's definitely going to be a game changer for things going forward. Um, there's just so much humor and aggravation on both sides, and it's such a good contrast right. in this series. I mean, I will say that when the humor's not there and it's not always there, you kind of start to drift out because you expect it to be there. Well, I think that's the, the, the problem with a lot of comedy books. Even in today's day with stand-up comedy is, you know not every joke's going to hit, but when they yeah. hit with a joke, you expect everything to land perfectly when that's not the case and it's kind of in a sense putting in an unfair uh position on the writer himself yeah definitely and and it's one of those things too where the art's a little bit inconsistent it gets better towards the end of the book but i mean you see amanda connor's art on the cover yeah and, and you say ah, i wish the rest of the art was like that but obviously you know you can't really write and draw the book at the same time i know some people do but with a book like this really not an option so I, I kind of went in and out on this one. It still is a series that I do enjoy, though. I would say pick this up. If you're a fan of Harley already, this is a pull for you automatically because it definitely has that feeling. It's a good contrast with Power Girl and being aggravated, and the story is good. But if you're not typically a Harley fan, just looking for something fun to read, it's a pickup. I would start there, and maybe this leads to a pull for you. Oh, okay, perfect. That is that's awesome. Now, question about Power Girl: Is she in the? Is it the classic Power Girls? That new Power Girl that DC is getting ready to roll out. It, it's it's classic. It's Kara. So okay, yeah, they they decided to go that route. Although that could change because there's there's a lot of mystery in this. They haven't really gone out and and come out and said exactly what happened to her or how she ended up in the situation in the first place. Right. Right. Well, that's your poll, and I wish I could say the same thing about my book this week. Of course, I kind of can't, and it's Star Wars number seven. Now, the perfect way I can describe this book to you, James, is pretty much picture yourself, because we're both reading the series. Of right. course, it's written by Jason Aaron. There's a new artist, uh, Simon Bianchi, and picture this. So we're both on a, on a trip, right? We're on a road trip, and it's going nice and smooth, clear conditions, everything else. You fall asleep. You think, okay, I can ease off. I have no worries. Next thing you know, the driver hits the handbrake and the car spins out of control and everything comes to a stop. It doesn't sound like a fun trip. No, it doesn't. And I'm going on why, Yelp and complaining immediately. Well, the reason, <laughs> well, the reason why I say this is because this is an issue where it's a, it's a flashback issue based around Obi-Wan Kenobi. And pretty much the premise is, you know... Obi-Wan is kind of like deciding, oh, I'm a lot, you know, I'm lost. I can't be a Jedi, but he, he's like, but I need to watch over Luke and I don't think I can do that properly. So it's a lot of himself doubting himself. And it's just like, it's very uncharacteristic. It's something we've never really seen with Obi-Wan. But here, but the thing, the problem is, is that it just feels out of place. Like, yeah, it's a flashback issue. Which you didn't expect. I didn't expect going into it, and I know Bianchi is the new artist, but in this issue, the art takes a drastic drop back. I, mean, I not, noticed that. 
you know, and 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 that's the thing, and it kind of took me out of it a little bit. And we said for since the beginning of the series that one of the things that works with it is that it's consistent, it has the same writer, the same mm-hmm. artist, and the story progresses each week. This one is just like again, it's kind of like reading an episode of Arrow with just has that flashback, and it's just like. We don't need it. Like, you know, I don't care if Obi-Wan has doubts. The fact is we know how he turns out, you know. Mm-hmm. it's And, it's, again, it's just one of the things where I felt as if they wanted it to be an uncharacteristic side of Obi-Wan just to have it. Just to be like, oh, look, he's he's not always the wise and strong Jedi. He actually but has his moments of doubts. Didn't we kind of know that already based on the movies as well? And, I mean, even the prequels, if you want to go back to those, too. Uh, you kind of already know that going in, so I don't know if this was a necessary departure or not, honestly. And I, and I will say that as I read Star Wars and loved it so much, I'm not going to lie, based on some of the other Marvel stuff that I've read and, and not enjoyed, I, I just kept waiting for that thing to happen where it just became not as good anymore. And I'm worried that that's what's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hope, I really hope, that the series progresses again. They have, as long as Aaron is staying on as writer, I have some faith in this. Oh yeah. But again, it's kind of like I said, you're going that road trip and the car spins out, or if you want to put it another way, you're on a road trip and you get a flat tire, you change a tire, and all of a sudden you drive down the next thing, and oh my god, you know, another tire blows out, you know, and yeah, I think screwed. I think what you said about the art is the big thing for me though. Oh like, yeah, John John Cassidy's art was so good early on in the run and and i'm not saying that this art isn't good okay it's a step back yeah it's a step back it's a huge step back and and for a major book like star wars you got to be careful because there are people that will drop books just because of the art we've done that yeah almost dropped batman eternal because of a couple of bad art issues so this is a big deal i dropped daredevil because the art was so bad in it but i mean the thing is is you know, there's more of a story like, you know, you have Jabba's forces are going through Tatooine and, you know, stealing, you know, pretty much stealing water from people, saying, you know, you haven't paid your water tax. People are like, well, we need that because it's the way we can get food and, you know, trade and everything else and, you know, with the water. And it, again, it just, it felt very out of place. And, you know, you have Luke, who's probably around maybe five or four years old, runs off. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's typical boy runs off, fronts of the bad guys, and then somebody comes in to save the day kind of a thing. Mm. And again, when I read it, I was just like, I could totally go back to issue six, skip issue seven, and then when issue eight comes out, hopefully it's, it'll still be a connected story. And I hope that they don't do this. This is my biggest fear is I hope Marvel, and I, I even to the to the people who are doing this book and series i hope they don't feel that because it's star wars it's too big to fail yeah i think that that that's a legitimate concern because i mean they could have done this in an annual yeah that's the thing that bugs me is that why would you do make issue seven so out of place when you could have done what everybody else does even marvel does this a lot where you just put out an annual you want to do like a quick little one-shot flashback story and then you go right back into the regular series because annuals, sometimes they tie in, sometimes they don't. Right. Well, DC, I mean, I, you know, I had a Deathstroke annual and, and DC, you know, it t- it all ties into the main story arc. But again, with, with Star Wars, it just felt really out of place. The art took me out of it. The writing, I was just like, 
it was just like I said, it, it was a story that I could care less, couldn't care less about. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just that's the thing. So, I mean, for me, issue seven's a drop for me. So, as as the series goes forward, uh, on a scale of one to ten, ten being I'm scared shitless, and one being ah, it's all right. Where's your level of panic as to the future of this series? It's at a three right now. It's not high, but I'm on alert. You got I'm the like, caution ball lit. I got the caution ball lit. You know, it's it's lit, and it's one of those things where, like I said, hopefully within I want to say, hopefully by issue ten, I can finally go back to like you know level one, pretty much, turn the bulb off. Yeah, because the, the writing's still great. Okay. Yeah, I again, mean, let's not let's not. To, let's not put that in the It's corner. just a hiccup, but again, we've seen a lot of series where you have one or two issues where, again, it's just a hiccup of an right. issue. So, again, I mean, it's at a three. It's not like, oh, my God, it's going to suck. Go to level 10. Oh, my God. Again, I just wish they they I wish they kept Cassidy. I wish they kept him because his art was just fantastic. Yeah, and they kept I him agree. engaged. And what was great about Cassidy's art was, it's on the same level of the Darth Vader comics. So you felt like you could read mm-hmm. the two series and exactly. you get the same thing out of it. But again, that's going to do it for what we're reading. But coming up next, we, uh, let's just say we took one for the team this weekend. That's it. Geek Tame come up next and down nerdy. This is David Sobolov, voice of Grodd on The Flash and Drax on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the segment we've all been dreading since we found out what we found out about the Fantastic Four, thinking that Marvel's first family might as well be the Kardashians based on the way things are going. So, Nick, we knew that this was going to have to happen sooner or later. We're going to talk about it and review 20th Century Fox's reboot of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, and back to the Kardashian reference, they make more money than this does in a single second. So, I mean... Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the numbers, I'm looking at Box Office Mojo right now, and the uh, there's they're saying, oh, there's no production budget available. Well, the thing was, earlier there was a production budget, which was about $122 million, I believe, and domestic total as of yet, as of August 10th is $27.94 million. Yikes. Worldwide, people say, well, make worldwide, maybe make it back. Worldwide with foreign, $62 million. Wow. Bottom yeah. line, though, we were, to our, we were talking about Ant-Man or reviewing Ant-Man and how much money that made. You have to make your budget back domestically. Yeah. You cannot do it worldwide. I understand that, you know, that's one way for movies to make their budget. I totally get that. This is not an international movie. Right. This is... And as far as Marvel movies goes, this one, and maybe Spider-Man, should be about as American as it gets. Because this is Marvel's first family, okay? Well, I mean, not all of them are American in this version of the movie. This will be very spoiler-heavy, by the way. Since we're assuming 90% of you probably haven't seen this movie and wanted to save your money. (laughs) So, just allow us to... Well, of course, we're not going to give away the whole movie, but allow us to give you the bits and pieces, as it were. And i got to tell you, man... Um, I know that we went to see it separately in my theater, and I went to see it on Saturday. Yeah. It was uh, probably half full. Really? And I know you went to see it on Monday. Why don't you tell people how many people were in your theater? Seven. Including, that's including my friend and I that went. And my friend and I actually went drinking before that because we knew we were going to be getting into it. So we're just like, let's go to this restaurant and just drink. And not even the cold refreshingness of my rum and coke could 
make me want like I literally was close to just probably about halfway through walking out of the theater. See, like, you like, you wanted me to kind of prepare you. Yeah. I did tell you the drinking wouldn't be enough. No. But I wanted you to have to suffer like I suffered. Yeah. And it, I told you, I said, there's going to be a point in the movie where you're going to throw your hands in the air and be like, what are we doing? Well, that's the most frustrating part of this movie is that there are times where it can totally redeem itself. Where, yes. But it doesn't do that. No, there are glimmers of hope throughout this movie. And then one of the most frustrating things about it is it takes a complete left turn away from the things that it almost does well. And completely ignores it. I will say that the first 10 minutes of this movie is Tomorrowland. Yeah. Basically. Basically. If you've seen Tomorrowland, it's the same exact beginning as Tomorrowland with different characters and different douchebag teachers that are stifling kids' creativity. Yeah. And, and the thing was, in the first few, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the film when they were, you know, young kids, my, my friend Brett, who I went to see this with, he turns to me in the theater and he just says... He literally is the most emotionless child actor I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. you know, to that point. And ben, it's just, Gr- ben Grimm's character. Yeah, Ben Grimm's character. Like, and we both kind of liked the way they did with, what they do with Reed, but it was just like, okay. And then when they fast forward to them in high school, I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're 30 years old. Like, the thing is, like, they surround yeah. him with like everybody else looks to be 17 or in their early 20s, like no, or, you know older than 22 but yeah like miles tyler and then jamie bell comes up and stands up next to him like god damn like you know it's kind it, of it was creepy. awkward it was very awkward because basically you're throwing like younger kiddish clothing on yeah. a 30 year old man to try and make him look younger that didn't really work i gotta be honest that that was really weird that was like worse than beverly hills 90210 yeah when they tried to do that back in the day yeah and then of course and then we get introduced in that scene in the high school to sue storm played by of course by kate maron i'm gonna say this right now i love kate i think kate maron's a good actress i liked her in house of cards and there's all the stuff she's done too it's been good this is just came down to the writing was horrible and the actors were just very disinterested she was awful Oh, she was robotic. Like Sue Storm. She was, was awful. Sue Storm was in the movie. Is my friend and I just looked at each other like she's a robotic bitch. There like, was she's no emotionless and robotic. And honestly, the only person that was having fun in the entire film it looked like was the guy who was playing Doom, and that was prior to him becoming Doom. He was just Victor Von Doom. It's funny because she and Michael B. Jordan had no chemistry, no, at all as brother and sister. It was, and and I know that you know she's adopted and all that stuff. I get that, but as a family unit, they had zero chemistry. Even the dad, they had zero chemistry. Yeah, throughout the just, entire movie, everybody felt very distant of one another. Like Sue Storm and Giant Storm. And this is what kind of pissed me off the most is that in the comics. The fact that they're biological twins, or you know, really, or at least biological siblings, is a big major thing in the comics. Yeah. And here, it's like I said, like we both said, you don't even notice that they're brother and sister, or even a you know stepbrother and stepsister. And then Ben Grimm gets demoted to pretty much a lackey in this film, and the only way they bring him in is saying Reed Richards. And the gang get drunk, which they can't even play drunk properly. Uh, they say, oh, there's only three of us and there's four pods. We need somebody to go. You know, instead of them going to space and getting hit by cosmic rays, 
This is when they go to what's called Planet Zero, and just some stuff happens. And I'm sorry, but you go to a, a, a planet that's uninhibited by anything, and you see a pool or puddle of anything, you don't stick your hand in it. Here's the deal. Don't touch anything. Yeah. How about that? How about we don't touch anything? And how about that whole scene where they get drunk and be like, this is bullshit. We're going to be the first ones on the planet. Really? Really? You're going to be that stupid for some for a group of guys that are supposed to be ultra-intelligent, minus Michael B. Jordan. For a group of guys that are supposed to be ultra-intelligent scientists? That wasn't a very smart thing to do. I don't care how drunk they were. That was the dumbest friggin' decision. So it got to the point where I was like, you know what? You guys did this to yourselves. You all did this to yourselves. This was a stupid reason to do anything. And then what was funny was, is that nothing really happens to them after that, other than being, other than them being studied after they get their quote unquote powers. Nothing really happens. I mean, I would be pissed if it was me. I realize that maybe scientific curiosity and uh, what the government can do takes precedent over that, but they basically destroyed millions and billions of dollars worth of equipment because they decided to be cowboys and they left the guy behind and basically killed him for all they know. Well, and nothing the, happened. Well, here's the thing is that I want to talk about Giant Storm real quick too since we kind of brushed on everybody else except for him. In the comics, he's a playboy. He's very thing. Michael B. Jordan is very emotionless in this. He's like, has, he doesn't yeah. look like, he doesn't smiling. He isn't wildly wisecracking. He kind of comes off as a dick too. Like, you know. And, and what was the deal with the whole. Let's be the Fast and the Furious for 10 years. Yes! And it's just like, what the hell? And, you know, we'll get to their powers and everything else in a second. But, you know, like, fast forwarding, again, people say, well, who went to the, to the Zero planet, or Planet Zero? Well, Reed, Ben, Johnny, and Victor did. Sue was behind, left behind and kind of was like, oh, my God, you know, we got to help them get back and everything else. And They didn't even tell her. They didn't, no, they tell, didn't her. tell her at all where they were going. I'll say this. The one thing I did like about this film, this is where I thought we could have gotten, gotten interesting, was when they were being transformed. Like when they're trying to get back and you see like the rocks getting inside of Ben's pod and it's transforming mm-hmm. him. And then the fire busts through Johnny's thing and he's just a fire skeleton pretty much. And he's screaming in pain. Like that, I was like, okay, there is something here. Then there's just, again, it's like, well, the Fantastic Four in the comics are known for being really, really famous and well-known and having to deal with that, amongst other things. But what are we going to do? We're going to keep them in a bunker and make them do top-secret missions. It's like, and, no. And Reed takes off. Yes. Just takes off. That's the other thing. I'm like, really? I understand that you want to rescue your friends and maybe you feel like this isn't the right place to do it. He just takes off. And his plan is to go back to the other dimension? That's his grand plan for, for fixing everybody? Not a good plan, Reed. You're supposed to be the smart one. I'm going to do you one better for something that I thought... Here's my... Here's what I thought they could have done well. When they bring Victor back from the other dimension, and he's you know he's staggering around, and he looks like he's close to death, so they bring him in, and they start you know trying to get answers from him, and he becomes Doom, and he comes up, he breaks out of everything, he starts popping heads and walking down the friggin' hallway like a boss, okay? Yeah. Like, I am Dr. Doom, I am the biggest bad of bads. And then what happens? They eventually go back to the other dimension, and he sets up his little destruction of the Earth, because the two worlds can't exist, because they're going to destroy it anyway kind of thing. 
And then when we finally get to the final battle with the now Fantastic Four, he goes from head popping badass to rock thrower. Yeah, and that's the what thing. was that? Well, the thing too is what, the, the thing with Doom. This really upset me. Was not only that did he go from like I can pretty much just with a my swing with a uh, you know a little flash in my hand blow up your head off your body. Uh, the fact of the matter is, his whole point is I just want to go back to to Planet Zero. That's all he wants to do. And what happens? The storm's father's like, no, we want you. You belong here. It's like, let him go. He wouldn't be trying to destroy the world if you just let him go back. And, just and not only that, his whole thing. And, and, and the thing too that pissed me off is that you know, in the comics, Doom isn't hell bent on destroying shit. He, no, wants, he wants to, to rule. rule it. Yeah. So, and here's the other thing that they did: the guy that was supposed to be playing Mole Man. Going forward in future movies and stuff. Yeah. Spoiler alert: He dies. Yeah. You kill another villain that you could have used right off the bat. Now I'm not saying that you know Doctor Doom should have been able to blow up the heads of the Fantastic Four. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not stupid. Well, he should have been able to do that. Rocks though. Yeah. You know? He has more abilities than that, and you turned him into a five-year-old kid throwing rocks at his well, neighbor's the window. Too, the problem too is in the comics, Doom is he is somebody who masters you know black magic and science. That's how he kind of gets he gets all his powers and stuff like that. This one is just. He took a dip in the green pool, and he's just powerful for no explanation Here's whatsoever. Here's what he is. Here's what he is. He's a borderline Mount Rushmore villain yeah. that was turned into a 15-minute end-of-a-movie sideshow freak. Yeah. Okay? That's exactly what he was turned into. He they, looked like a crash test dummy fucked in the Rector set. It was, real, it was ridiculous, and I actually went back. Because I'm like, you know what? Maybe this is kind of the way he was supposed to look. Cause so I went back through Fantastic Four, uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four, to look and see how they portrayed Doom. Yeah. The only thing they got right in this movie with Doom's look from the Ultimate Fantastic Four was the cloak. The cloak, how it was tattered and it was a little <laughs> more bulky. A little more bulky than the traditional cloak that he would wear in the regular comics. If you don't believe me, go to Bob's at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards of Virginia Beach. Just go see for yourself. You will see it. They got the cloak right. Everything else was Trank's vision. That's all it was. And I want to talk about Josh Trank for a second. That tweet that he sent out where he sort of disowns the entire movie, which, you know what? Maybe he is upset. But I I, I obviously blame him for all of this debacle that happened. I still blame 20th Century Fox because they had a point where they knew what was going on step by step. They could have stopped this. I know they would have lost money. They're going to lose about $60 million anyway. Yeah. You could have stopped this. You could have delayed it a couple of months. You even pushed it into September, October, whatever. You could have pushed it, and you could have gotten it better. And you didn't do it. So I still blame 20th Century Fox. Not not really as much as I blame Trank, but it's right up there. I blame Josh Trank a lot, too, because, again, it's one of those things where he's like, oh, I want to be like a follow-up like like a, a follow the Chronicle and everything else. And... Again, you see all the problems on set, how people didn't get along with him, and all this other stuff. Remember, he also, during this whole time, got fired from the Star Wars uh, right, spin exactly. too. He can say whatever he wants. We know and what And when he okay. said, you know, I had a vision, and it was cut, you know, taken away from me and everything else. And, you know, there was a story that came out that Fox, pretty much the third act, they took over. Like, they, they, like, they wouldn't allow him to direct a third act. And, they, and when it came to editing, 
they locked him out of the editing bay. And th- when you watch that, you can see that because all this movie is is just set up and set up and set up. You know, one review said it was a trailer for a movie you're never going to see, pretty much. And yeah, it's, basically, it's, a, it's like one giant trailer because it's all a bunch of setup. Yeah, it and, doesn't push itself forward. No, ever. It. I, I mean, at one point, I think I literally in the theater put my hands up in the air and was and was waving them like, "Come on, come on, let's get there a little faster," kind of thing. Because it just dragged so bad. Never mind how it didn't really capture the nature of Marvel's first family. It just dragged on and I'm sorry, constantly. But the whole the whole when it came to like the names and the classic sayings too, like this writing was just horrendous. It was like not even grade school writing. Because even grade school writing is somewhat consistent at a point. But like, you know, uh, for example, like Victor Von Doom saying, This'll happen, this'll happen, and also Stu Storm goes, Doctor Doom over here, I suck my hand in my head. Yeah. And, and See? head in my hand. And then all of a sudden, then the worst part of it though was, well, two, uh, okay, so we both know it's clobbering time is one of the most famous lines oh, in all the comics. I can't wait to talk about this. So, Ben Grimm, how does he get it? Well, apparently, when Ben Grimm was a little child, his brother, who appeared to be about 18 years old, used to, before he beat the shit out of him, say, it's clobbering time. So, they pretty much took, hey, and said to Ben Grimm, hey, you know that line that pretty much meant you know, your brother's going to abuse you and beat the shit out of you. And, like, the one scene here he's about to abuse him, he has a bat in his fucking hand. Yep. It's like, we're going to take that and make it a positive thing for you. You don't do that. That's no, really because awkward. That, that should be something that reminds you of a traumatic point in your childhood. And you're going to use it as a catchphrase? That makes no sense at all. The fact that they took that line, which is one of the most famous lines in comics, period. And everybody knows that line. And they took it and put it in with bullying and traumatic childhood experiences with a piece of shit older brother. I can't believe you would do that, yeah. ever. That would be like if they used, if they put it takes with great power comes with great responsibility and put it with Bill Cosby. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense, okay? <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a fun time I'm gonna have. I mean, come on, man. You can't do that with a line like that. You, It's just another clear-cut example to me. That, Josh Trank saying that he doesn't want his cast to read the source material, that he had zero respect for the property that he was given, and it shows well, throughout this movie, period. Well, he told, this is why I blame Trey more than I do Fox, is because Trey told them, don't read any source material. What? And then what, what does he do with Giant Storm? When he also comes to like the flame on, flame off? Nope, let's take a little switch, put it like in the top of his glove. He'll turn the switch on and allow his, him to turn on fire. They really? might as well have made it a clapper. Yeah. Okay, because that's kind of what it looked like. And I know you're saying, well, what about the web shooters in, in Spider-Man? Yeah, well, there's actual canon for him yeah. using web shooters that are built and manufactured. Yeah. So you can't complain about that. That's one of the few things you can't complain about with the Amazing Spider-Man. At least they kind of went with canon on stuff like that. But this, we knew it was going to be an unmitigated disaster. I don't think we were ready for the level of unmitigated disaster that this movie is, I would gladly find Transformers Age of Extinction 
and marathon that damn thing before I would suffer through 10 minutes of this steaming pile of garbage dumpster fire that is the Fantastic Four. I'd rather watch the 80s Fantastic Four Christmas story style where it's just all day, every you know, for like the one day. Yeah, I'd rather do that, you know. And, and, and follow is, that up with the Captain America want, motorcycle helmet yes, movie. Yes, and if you want – and the thing is too is if you want to get the re- – I can't believe I'm going to say this – if you want to get the real kind of Fantastic Four esque thing, you gotta watch the Tim. You watch the Tim Story one that came out a few years ago, like in the mid to early two thousands. Yeah. yeah, what's and that's funny that you would say that because that that, that to the fact that that's the best we've yeah. got is a sad state of now, affairs. I think. No, I want to move forward before you get our rating on it. I want to move forward to two things. First, I want to talk about. Uh, there's a, that story that Fox is still moving forward with the sequel, which I don't know how. Then you have another report saying that they're going to think about scrapping the sequel and putting that money towards Deadpool 2. Um, what's your thoughts? Like, do you, like, do you think you're really going to move forward after taking a 60-some-odd million dollar hit with Fantastic that, Four 2? I, well, don't forget there was advertising budgets that we don't even know about there because they're all over TV with all those Denny's commercials and stuff. So there's even more money that's gone out the window that we don't even know about. Right. I don't see how you do that. That would be like if Disney said, you know what? Screw it. We're making John Carter too. It's just going to happen. It was already planned out, so we're going to do it. So I don't know why you would do this. Maybe they think that by some miracle they're going to make back some of that money with home video distribution or something. I don't know how you could even come close. I think they're waiting. They I think the story came out because despite all the hype right now around Deadpool and the Deadpool movie, they're waiting to make sure that Deadpool is going to be as successful as people think that it's going to be, then make this announcement. Because, let's face it, all they have to do is wait until February. That's not that far away. So they can easily wait until February and say, you know what, we're going to can Fantastic Four 2. That's not happening because Deadpool made double that amount in two weeks so what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead with a Deadpool sequel and just replace it because the distance in time between the Deadpool movie and what would be a second Deadpool movie is probably enough to make it. Even if you had to push it a little, you'd probably have enough time to make it and get a second Deadpool movie in. So I think that that's what's ultimately going to end up happening. But I can't really blame them for playing it safe at this point. Yeah, I agree as well. Um you know, uh, I think that they're gonna they're gonna wait. I mean, six months from now, February, so they're gonna wait, see how Deadpool does. I think Deadpool has enough going behind it. I mean, when Rob Liefeld is you know saying it's really good, you know, I I believe that. Oh yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, is just uh, you know that that's the that that's the thing is with this movie is that I think you know they're gonna wait until they say okay we're gonna scrap it or we're gonna go forward with it. You know, we'll see. You know, we, we really, really will see. I, I can't forget. I just forgot the second thing I wanted to mention. Well, here's one thing I wanted to mention. So okay. I'll jump in for a second. That story that came out about the deleted scenes uh, from Fantastic Four. And let's talk about maybe Josh Trank's If There's a Director's Cut. Do you envision anything, deleted scenes, director's cut, whatever, that could have actually made this movie a good movie, because I gotta tell you, man, I am racking my brain, and I can't think of the pr- the product that we presented. Thinking, okay, if there was a tweak here and a tweak there, this would have been a good movie. I can't say that. So, what do you think? Yeah, again, it's gonna be one of those things where, oh, it was an extra like thirty minutes or whatever. You know, no, 
Because that's the thing. It's like, I'm sorry, but 30 minutes of footage. And you say, well, there's more action scenes. They cut out these action scenes. But again, they can say that, oh, they cut out this action scene here and there. But again, the thing is, why did they do it? Did it not fit? Did it, was it a stupid action scene? I mean, I'm sorry, but every action scene with Reed Richards was freaking retarded because. Yeah, and they can feel forced. Let's face it, action scenes can feel forced. Because the thing with Reed Richards is, okay, you turn him into Dalzim from uh, Street Fighter, pretty much. Like, all the fight scenes, it's just him doing that. It's like, really? I mean, I, I just don't see anything that could have made this movie any better. I'm sorry. And, and I'm not trying to be negative. And you know me. If you've listened to this show on a regular basis, I'll give almost anything the benefit of the doubt, okay? There's been stuff that a lot of people haven't liked that I'll say, you know what? I like that it wasn't that bad. This time, I'm not sugarcoating it at all. If I'm giving this a rating... If I could cut a one in half <laughs> and lie it on its side, that's probably what I would do. Yeah. Okay, so the way I'm going to rate this is I'm going to do it opposite to where 10 is worst and one is best. This is 10 out of 10 school bus fires. Yeah. This is. Yeah, it's, it really is. Like, I'm not trying to make a joke. It was not a good movie. It, was, it wasn't. It was just hand in my head. You know, just save your money. Yeah. Okay. Especially because we went to mayonnaise and it was like seven bucks or whatever. But still, it's like, I really wish I had that seven dollars in my account right now. Well, because, I mean, quite frankly, I, I should have skipped out and gone and saw Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Yeah. Because I hear that was actually worth seeing. And Hitman's going to be coming out. And I guarantee you, even though video game movies are a little tricky business, I bet you Hitman's going to be ten times better than Fantastic Four. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I want to go that far. No, I'm telling you right now, Fantastic Four was so bad. When we go see Hitman, Age of 47, right. we're going to like it more just because of how bad, because it's going to be the next thing we saw after Fantastic Four. Well, that is true. That is true. So we're going to end up, li- whether it's whether it's good or not, we're going to end up liking it more because of Fantastic Four than we might have if we had not seen Fantastic Four. Exactly. So that's our take on Fantastic Four. Okay, yeah, I think that we've... Made our feelings perfectly clear on the Fantastic Four. But coming up next, a lot more interesting and good things that are coming, including a major announcement about Constantine on Nerd News. That's next on Down and Nerdy. This is Abby Gogstar, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds. We go around the interwebs and see what's trending, because it's time for what, James? No news! And our first story. Well, actually, you know what, James? I'm going to let you take over this one because I know this pretty much was... Oh, I just want to... The words just can't aren't there to describe it. This was like your bliss point. Like, your. I'm picturing after this story was released, James in like a field of flowers spinning and, you know, holding his son and just spinning around by his arms. Like, you hear, born free. Yes, uh. the wind blows. It'd be like if somebody threw Leonardo DiCaprio a life preserver, or an Oscar. I mean, that that's really what that's really what this felt like because <laughs> it seemed like all hope was lost when NBC canceled Constantine and then CW didn't pick up Constantine, or did they? Because it was just announced and confirmed by everyone under the sun that our old buddy in the trench coat's coming back and Matt Ryan's going to be playing him in an episode of Arrow coming up this season. We actually just found out, too, that it's going to be episode five, and Nick, he's going to play a big role going forward in the entire DC TV universe, even though he's only going to be in one episode. 
Exactly. The episode is going to be in. It's called Haunted. And from what we've been told from Mark Guggenheim, who is the producer over, you know, the showrunner and everything else over at Arrow, uh, he's going to have a major role in Sarah's resurrection story. And it's going to be take place in the fifth episode of the season. So we know not only when Sarah Lance is being, you know, brought back to life, but how she's being brought back to life and how maybe it's more than just the Lazarus pit. And, and they said that you're bringing, and I like how they're bringing Constantine into the fold. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. They're saying, you know, as you know, the Lazarus pit changes people when they're resurrected. But in the case of Sarah, who's been dead for a long time, Constantine comes in and kind of makes sure that everything goes according to plan. Right. Exactly. Because maybe this is how, Things don't really change so much when Sarah gets resurrected. So it'll be very interesting to see the role that he's going to play. And now we say this is only for one episode, but remember Firestorm wasn't supposed to have a major role either going at first on The Flash. That changed. There's been plenty of characters that were only supposed to be around for an episode or two and ended up coming back. I'm not saying that Constantine's coming back. I'm not one of those people. I'm not going there. And I'm not saying he's suddenly going to be uh, have a major role on Arrow because I'm not even sure that would make sense. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't work him into Legends of Tomorrow somewhere at some point down the line because there's time travel aspects there. Well, and there's you... some paranormal stuff going on. So it could happen. We could see John on more than one episode of more than one of these shows. Well, can you imagine... And again, I'm not going to play the thing of like, oh, well, maybe, you know, he's going to come back. CW is just testing out and see if people will watch. People are going to watch. It's not going to be like, oh, my God, one episode was great. We're going to bring Constantine back. Right. My thing is, what if in Legend of Tomorrow, because, again, he has that tie to, to White Canary, what if he plays more of like an advisor role or somebody, like, somebody who watches over Black Canary, in a sense, from a distance? It comes back maybe one or two episodes in a season. Now, remember, John Constantine is kind of an interesting character, too, because he's always out for himself. Right. So he's not necessarily always the good guy. I'm not saying he's going to be the bad guy, but he could slip something in, and if Sarah goes off the rails, he's the only one that can bring her back. You know, it's like, okay, so now you owe me a favor. Right. In the comics and even in the series, you've seen him kind of screw people over. So you got to watch John Constantine because he's very tricky. I'm just happy that Matt Ryan, A, is back as the character because I think that's great for continuity and I think he did a great job. But B, that clearly Matt Ryan has a passion for the character of John Constantine. And I think that's why... He did such a good job. So I'm just glad that this all fell into place the way it was supposed to. And they didn't just bring in the character. They brought the guy who played the character so well and had such a huge following. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I can't wait to, to watch it. Uh, again, Arrow premiere, I believe, was October 7th, October yep. 8th. You got October it, October 7th. 7th. Yep. All right, so we'll be back October 7th. Again, we can't wait for the new season. Um, of course, remember SummerSlam's happening too on Sunday, I believe, and Stephen Amell is going to be in a tag match as well. So it's either it's, this Sunday or next Sunday. I can't remember. Either that. way, it's a good goddamn time to be a nerd. Yeah, it is. And uh, staying in the DC realm, we're actually going to dive into more of the Vertigo realm since we are talking about Constantine. We're going to dive more into Vertigo and talk about 100 Bullets because Tom Hardy might have found a new starring role. He's going to be also, he's also signed on to produce and possibly lead New Line's big screen adaptation of 100 Bullets, which is, of course, the acclaimed DC Comics imprint Vertigo by writer Brian Azzarello and artist Edward Rizzo. Uh, Chris Borelli, 
who was from the Vega Tapes, has penned a first draft of the screenplay of the project. Now, for people who don't know much about 100 Bullets, it surrounds the story of a mystery man known as Agent Graves, who offers people that have been wronged a chance at retribution. And, of course, this award-winning series ran for 100 issues and wrapped up in 2009. Yeah, Variety uh, came out with a report, and uh, Entertainment Weekly confirmed it uh, this past week. I just think it's interesting that all of a sudden, Hardy drops out of Suicide Squad for reasons we weren't really sure about. Maybe he didn't have such a big role. And then he picks this up, where it looks like he might have a huge role, not just in the starring role, but they're saying he might be involved in the production and everything. And I'm, I can't really remember if he really has any experience doing that. Well, it said he's he signed to produce, but it's not sure if he's going to be in the movie or not. He signed yeah. to be a producer. Yeah, so we'll and that, that's very interesting. So we're not sure if he's going to be uh, playing Agent Graves or not. I could see him doing that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, t- I think that this is a great first step uh, with Vertigo moving to the new line. Of course, we did that story uh, a couple of months ago and saying it's great how they're going to focus on Vertigo and not kind of muddy the waters and just bring it in with DC. Now, I know that they're doing the Sandman uh, already as well, but remember, that's not going to be a New Line property, it doesn't yeah. look like. So this is the first official New Line property with Vertigo, and it just opens up so many doors. So what do you think? Are you excited to have Tom Hardy involved in this? Or do you think this is a good way for him to go? Tom Hardy is a phenomenal actor. I mean, he was great. He's great at pretty much everything he is. He's in... Um, if you want, I believe I said this on a previous podcast back in what they called the day, according to the children. He, I w- if you want to get a sense of how this movie, if he does get this role, or he says, you know, I want to act in it as well, and kind of pull actual chain tans doing with Gambit, where he's producer and actor as well, go back and watch The Take. And it used to be on Netflix, but it's about like a six or seven episode series where Hardy plays kind of like a mob as kind of wretched guy out for retribution in a mm-hmm. sense. Or even if you want to watch something like Warrior do that too. Again, he's a phenomenal actor. I would love to see him in front of this and and, be, and take hold of this too. He was a lawless as well, wasn't he? Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. And uh, again, he's just he really, really well played. It just seems like it suits him. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not saying he has to star. I mean, he can go ahead, be the producer, dude, if that's what you want to do. Because, you know, you, there's always that uh, that trope on, that people make fun of with actors. What do we really want to do is direct and get behind the camera. Kind oh, of yeah. It's, so, it's, it's kind of like when you have athletes who want to be rappers. Yeah. And rappers want to be athletes. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, actors I mean, want to be directors. But maybe think, there's some of that going on. I don't know. But I think in this case, you don't. Sign somebody like Tom Hardy, right? Who's the biggest Tom Hardy, and right. not have him be in front of the camera at some circumstance. Uh, but I mean, again, I don't know much about Hundred Bullets. Never read it. Uh, have you ever have you read the story Hundred Bullets sort of series? I actually haven't. I was getting ready to start reading it before this announcement was made. I wanted to go back to the beginning, obviously, and do it right, like I'm also doing with uh, with Sandman. I just started uh, reading that a little bit. So I wanted to go back and do it right, and I had no idea that this was going to be the first one, so it looks like I picked the right horse kind of thing. <laughs> no, I'm excited to dive into it because I think it's an interesting property, and I wanted to go through some of the older Vertigo stuff that I haven't read before the new stuff starts coming out too. But speaking out about making things old new again, Nick, we actually got a little bit more information about the Universal Monsters reboots that are going to be happening, and something that I think makes you very, very happy as well with the direction they said they're going to go. Oh, yes. So a while back, it was announced that Universal is going to release and remake 
they're my, classic monster movies. You know, they're going to be doing Van Halen. They're be doing the Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon. They kind of want to make it. And it's, the thing that caught a lot of people off guard was they said they kind of want to do like an Avengers as kind of like a Marvel Cinematic Universe as right. thing. And people are like, well, wait a minute. Such as me, I'm like, wait a minute. These things are based in horror. What the fuck? You yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, and so luckily, again, we'll see. I can't, you know, words mean one thing until you see it on the screen. Uh, but screenwriter producer Alex Kurtzman, uh, who with Chris Morgan is overseeing this new shared universe, which will also, of course, debut in 2017, a new take on The Mummy, uh, said, quote, I promise you there will be horror in these movies. It is our life goal to make a horror movie. The tricky part is actually how do you combine horror with either adventure or suspense or uh-huh. action and be true to all the genres together, close quote. Um I think this is kind of worries me. Even though I say we want horror elements in it, I really fear that this is going to turn into the Benicio del Toro Wolfman. Yeah, I'm I'm just a little worried about that too. And I don't want horror to be jump scares. No, necessarily because I hate jump scares, and I don't I don't want that to be how they bring the horror in. You know, I mean, if you're going to do it that way, then then don't do it. Don't don't make it horror. Just make it adventure. So. I don't know if they're going to make it horror in and, the sense of it's going to be creepy. Well, that's the thing is, and that's what made the universe. I'm a big fan, as everybody knows, of the Universal Monster movies. And what made the Universal Monster movies so great and so such classics, other than who starred in the roles, is the fact that they weren't based. You look at you watch them now; they weren't based on. Oh my god, I'm scared, I can't sleep at night. They're based on the creep factor. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's I my kind that. of horror right that's, there. I love the creepy horror, you know? Uh, for example, you know, there's just a bunch of other horror movies. There's one that recently came out. I can't think of it. I saw it a while back with a couple of friends of mine. It was really good because, again, it wasn't really the jump scare, anything like that. It was the creep factor. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing. Uh, I hope that going forward, this is what it is, but I, <laughs> I hope it's not like the Wolfman or anything like a Van Helsing, yeah. like with Hugh Jackman's version. Um, I really hope not. I mean, again, stay away from the gore. Yeah. You know, don't do the gore. No torture porn type stuff. You don't need to go all out like that. Just make it I creepy mean, and, and make people th- go, damn. And one you know? thing I would love to see, here's one thing I would love to see, especially when it comes to something like the Wolfman. I would love to see practical transformations. Like, yeah, let's do to, that. To me, to me, the most amazing transformation in all of horror was uh, the Howling. The Howling was a fantastic had a fantastic transformation scene in it, and it was just very you know practical and everything else. I understand CG is easier and stuff like that, but well, you do but, that but, to an extent. But again, you, you know? don't know how happy you know. Let's think about horror fans. Is you know we're you know. We're fans of the creepy stuff or fans yeah. of the practical. That's what made the creepy stuff even more better. So, again, I hope that Kurtzman stays true to his word. And, again, I'm going to see these movies when they come out. But something I'm very excited about, James, uh, is, of course, something you can pick up when it comes out over at Bob's The Fantasy Escape is the new Deadpool and Cable series, of course, announced by Marvel. And it's going to have none other than Fabian Niciesa and Riley Brown teaming up for the series and i'm so excited about this series. here's the deal back in episode 64 yes we talked to fabian niciesa he told us this was gonna happen 
Oh, yeah. Without actually telling us. If you go back and listen to episode 64, listen to the interview. He basically feeds this up to us on a silver platter and says that this is coming. And you you get the sense when you were talking to Fabian that this was kind of his baby, you know? Not just... Deadpool, because of, obviously he's a co-creator of Deadpool, New Mutants number 98, so how can you go wrong with having him involved? But it's almost like he wanted to have Deadpool and Cable back together. This was something very important that he wanted to do. So I think this is going to be, this is one of those ones where he's going to put it all in. He's going right. to put everything he has into this. That's why I'm excited for it. Well, yeah, plus, I mean, he says, you know, it's going to feature, you know, be like kind of like time travel, confusion, bromance, mercenary action, and more. And then, pretty much the main time, the main plot of this is going to be when uh, Campbell gets a vision of a terrible future set off by the death of one man. He knows he must protect him no matter what. And, of course, Deadpool has been the one contracted to kill that one man. And I like this because it spins off of two things. It kind of spins off of Days of Future Past. Yep. And it spins off of the Deadpool X-Force series that I read. And reason why is because Deadpool versus X-Force, Deadpool goes back in time and changes history. Like, you know, the, he takes side of the British and everything else and changes and he changes outcomes of time. And I like this because, again, it's, it's a nice little continuation of that. And, again, I when you think of Deadpool, outside of, of course, Fabian and Rob Liefeld, Riley Brown, who of course is a friend of ours, amazing. Like I, yeah, he, he had amazing Deadpool work, you know, and stuff like that. And remember, he was on Lobo and left. So now part yes. of me thinks that this is maybe one of the reasons why he left Lobo. Well, I mean, decisions, decisions. You know, yeah. <laughs> what but, do you want to go with? I mean, again, I love this. I love that these two guys are teaming up because again, you have such a great creative team. Putting together, and Riley's actually going to be writing an issue or two of the series as well. Yeah, I think he's going to be helping out with with. I don't know if he's written before, but I mean, who better to write with when I talk, when you talk about the Merc than Fabian Niciesa? You know, we kind of <laughs> learn kind of learn from the best sort of thing. So I don't know. I mean, even I'm interested. To me, I, I go back to what I read this week with Harley Quinn and Power Girl. I think that that's what DC's kind of trying to capture. Well, you know, a less badass version of it, of course, because you're not going to compare Power Girl and Cable. But, I mean, it's it's that same, you know, Deadpool's the wisecracker and Cable's more of the serious badass kind of guy that just is trying to get things done. And that that's what, why the relationship works right. kind of thing, you know. So I'm excited to maybe check this out myself, maybe dive into a little Deadpool of my own. Yes, that's going to do it for Nerd News this week. But come next, we'll be diving into the Book of Death with the writer of it himself, Robert Venditti. Stay tuned. Our interview with Robert Venditti comes next on Down and Nerdy. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, we've said it before when we reviewed it. The Book of Death is probably one of the biggest major arcs that's going on in comics right now. Probably the best that we've read so far. We're very happy to have the writer of that series and, of course, Exo Man of War for Valiant Entertainment. It's Robert Venditti. Robert, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem, Robert. So, Robert, the Book of Death guy is second printing, so you're a best-selling author. So when you found out that issue one was getting a second printing, what was your first response? How would you feel? I mean, it's always great news when that happens. Uh, you know, everything in comics, it's a tough business, you know. It's month to month, and you're only as good as your latest issue and all those kinds of things. So uh, you're on this cycle where, you know, every four weeks you've got an issue of your series coming out, and you and you hope people are going to respond well to them and that they're going to be successful. So uh, it's always a good feeling when you get a, when you get a, 
a second printing order, and it means that the book is is doing well, and and the publisher is uh, confident in, in making more of them. It's funny because it really just seemed like a launching pad right at the beginning of the first issue. Actually, I think that it had one of the most brutal beginnings to any major arc that I have ever read in comics. But then what's funny is is that you give a nice good transition to a very human side when Tama's introduced. So how hard is it to kind of balance that along with all the other characters that you have to juggle in this book? Well, I mean, I think that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, it it can be difficult for sure, but it's always the focus. The horror is only horrific if you understand the humanity and can relate to the characters that are experiencing it. So it's one of those things where certainly doesn't mean you're always successful, but you're always trying to put things in a way where you have a clean entry point and, and readers can sort of latch onto something and be able to relate to the situation through the characters, no matter how, uh, you know, fantastical or, or imaginary or fictitious they may be. We're talking to comic book writer Robin Venditti, of course, the writer for Valiant's Book of Death and also Exo Man War. So in issue one, we're, introduced to this young geomancer named David and then in issue two we get more of a look at him in action even a little bit more backstory on his situation so going forward how will he further evolve as a character and also without spoiling the end reveal of issue two which is awesome by the way how will we get to see via will we get to see via flashback of how he gets into the situation he's in uh we will for sure uh you know we're going to kind of tease that stuff out as the series progresses it's going to go four issues and in each issue you're going to get a little more back on how David got where he is and other things are happening or happening. But, you know, the overall idea is that uh, in the Valley universe, you have this mystical entity called the Geoancer, which is sort of the speaker of the earth. And it's a conduit between humanity and, and the earth itself as an entity. And this is something that has been around for millennia. And Galad, the eternal warrior is a mortal character who is always tasked with protecting these Geomancers. And somehow in this instance, uh, when one geomancer, geomancer died and the next geomancer was chosen, the process became corrupted. And if Galad and isn't able to sort of stop these horrific events from happening, as foretold in this book of prophecy uh, that he has in his possession, the process is going to continue to be corrupted, and it's going to be the end of the Valiant Universe. And so that's kind of what's at stake and, and who those characters are. You actually talked about the the Eternal Warrior, and there's something right at the end of issue one, I know that people have read it, you know that you're setting up for some sort of battle in issue two. And the relationship between he and the uh, Exo Man of War is a very interesting and complicated one. So talk about the relationship between those two on how that might play a bigger role going forward in the series. Yeah, I think that, you know, at, at first glance for a lot of people, they think that Exo Man of War and the Eternal Warrior are very similar characters because they're both historical in the sense that Eternal Warrior is an immortal character that's been around for thousands of years. But Exo Man of War is a character who was only normal in age, but was abducted by aliens from his own time about 16 centuries ago, and now has found himself in the modern day. So they both are sort of historical characters in that respect, but they're actually the exact opposites of each other because Galad has lived every single day of his lifespan, including those 16 centuries of cultural evolution and uh, an evolution in ethics and morality and what our concept of heroism is and all these sorts of things, whereas Eric was just picked up from point A and dropped off in point B with no chance to evolve. So they're very different, and, and while they knew each other back in Eric's original time and Galad was Eric's mentor and sort of taught him a lot about 
you know, how to swing a sword and how to be a, a warrior and to some extent a leader and those kinds of things. Um, there's a lot that separates them as well. And uh, Galah just has this tremendous amount of wisdom uh, and knowledge of history, not because he's read about them in books, but because he's, he's almost sort of a living document. He's seen it all. And that gives him a very long-term view at the Valiant Universe, whereas everybody else, including Ark, that has a normal lifespan, has a very short-term, by Galad standards, single lifespan view of the universe. And so they can both have goals that we understand and that are both noble in their own rights, but at the same time are you know, mutually exclusive of each other. And, and that's kind of the situation that we have in Book of Death. And I want to go back to something you, you said in your, in your last answer, previous answer, where you talked about the whole geomantic process and how it was getting corruption and everything else. Is that kind of reflective on how the political system today is kind of a thing? You kind of maybe draw a little bit of inspiration through that for, for kind of the way that with the whole process with geomancers? Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, there's certainly a lot of inspiration drawn, you know, from the modern day uh, that goes into everything that I write just because those are the influences that I have and these are the times that I grew up in. I don't know if I'm making a specific reference in that regard to, you know, a political situation specifically because the way that a geomancer is chosen is they are – uh, selected by the earth mm-hmm. and up until this point in every instance it's always been <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it a good choice you know yeah <laughs> but in, in this instance something has come in and corrupted that process and this is part of the mystery you know nobody really knows mm-hmm. not even galad at this point what has caused things to go wrong but something has come in and corrupted this process and allowed other forces to intervene and that's where the problem lies. It's something that's never happened before and, and nobody, even Galad, is prepared to deal with because it's, it's not something that anybody ever knew was even a possibility. So this, like we said before, this arc has been probably one of the best. I mean, we're talking Convergence, Secret Wars came out almost right around the same time. And we, we kind of said Book of Death kind of sort of did it the right way when you're supposed to do a big arc. So when you have this kind of thing, what is the challenge to bring other characters that other people are writing into a major arc? And do you consult with them at all? Like my, Matt Kent, who writes uh, Ninjak, do you say, hey, is this something that you would write in this book or do you like to give it your own spin? Yeah, very much uh, a lot of cooperation in terms of speaking with the other writers. You know, Valiant does have a writer's room established, and, you, you know, the, the books that are involved in terms of tie-ins are Exo Man of War, which I also write, but then Ninjak, which Matt Kent writes, uh, Harbinger, which Joshua Dysart writes, uh, and also Imperium, and then Bloodshot, which Jeff Lemire writes. And a lot of these characters that Matt writes, like the, even the, the other characters from Unity that in the book Unity that he writes are showing up in Book of Death. So I want to make sure that everybody is behaving and acting and and sort of following through on things that they've done in other books and and so we do look at each other's scripts and and try to coordinate all that kind of stuff and it is a huge challenge you know um warren simons the editor-in-chief at valiant always says that these crossovers are the hardest things to do in comics to do well you know Mm -hmm. so we work really hard at it and try to make it a something that readers can latch onto, even if they're not familiar with the Valiant universe and, and kind of get into the story and understand the stakes. And that was really done often so have well a lot of too. time to do that. So um, we do work at it pretty hard. Like I say, you just kind of hope that people like the results. So you mentioned the writer's room. I want to talk about that really quickly. Uh, what is it like going working for a company like Valiant who actually has a writer's room established? Like as a writer, is that something that you kind of always would like to do is work with a company that has a writer's room and has a better sense? Do you kind of like it where it's more – Everybody kind of goes their own certain way, and then somehow we just meet up in the end. 
Uh, I think both are good. You know, like I think if you if you look at creator owned comics, which I've done in the past as well, that's something where you kind of do whatever you want. You create the universe around you but if you're in a higher situation and you're in a shared universe with other books to me the fun of doing that is to be able to connect to other books and and not make it feel like you have to read them all but if you are reading them all you get some kind of reward for that you know what i mean oh yeah, and, oh, yeah. you know dc i read green lantern for dc and the green lantern group when we were doing crossovers whether it was like lights out or or godhead or something like that the writers of the individual green lantern books would get together in a writer's room and discuss things to make sure that we were all sort of moving in the right directions and ideas off each other and try to punch holes in each other to make the story stronger. And, you know, it's almost like you're, you're in a room with a bunch of editors, but they're also colleagues and friends and people whose opinions you respect. And, you know, guys like, like Matt Kent and Jeff Lemire, I've known them for 10 years since I was packing boxes at Top Shelf where they started out. And Joshua Dysart, I've been working with the whole four years I've been at Valiant. So it's great to be able to sit in a room and, and just talk story with those guys. It's, I don't know. It's, kind of a crazy way to be able to make a living. I feel really lucky, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, just definitely. go into a room, just sit down with people who have the same interests and the same jobs. You say, hey, let's what, what kind of stories can come up today? And just create some amazing stories. Mm -hmm. And you have, you have Robert, create some amazing stories in comics. Some of the best stuff I've read has come from you. Because uh, it is. It's just very thought-inducing and just it grabs you and has you on the edge of your seat like Book of Death does. Definitely. And I want to switch switch a little bit to, to Axel Manowar, which you also do as well. And I want to ask you kind of a little bit of a personal question. Eric of Dacia is the bearer of Shadhara, and as we people who've read it know, it chooses who's worthy of wearing. So I want to know, if Robert Venditti had a suit of armor of his own, how would you yourself deem someone worthy of wearing it? <laughs> uh, first of all, I appreciate what you said. Uh, that's really high praise. I'm sure you guys read more than your fair share of comics, so uh, thank you for that. You're uh, whether or not I would be worthy to wear a suit of armor, or how it would determine if someone else is worthy, um, it's actually a little bit different, you know, than than the way you've described it. If you look at it as a vine in the X Men War series, they believe the armor can only be worn if you're worthy. That's actually debatable. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it's it's possible that Arik is only able to wear it. Because he's a human, and the vine were the only people who ever tried to wear it before, and they were just physiologically incompatible with that suit of armor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of being worthy, I think whether you're, you know, a blue collar guy or you're a, a cop or you're a superhero in a suit of armor, I think worthy just just comes down to being, uh, you know, standing up for your core principles and uh, you know trying to do right by others uh, more so than yourself and. I think if we all did that, we'd probably uh, all get along fine. Oh, I agree totally. Yeah, that sounds like a good way to go about it. I could see that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Imagine talk... there's no countries, guys. Ah, uh, yes. yes. Nice. Imagine. You know, you talk about uh, Exo Man of War, which you've been writing for Valiant since 2012. He's kind of that character that, that people look at and that put Valiant sort of on the map. So how cool was it back in 2012 when Valiant sort of relaunched their own universe to relaunch such an important, important character after 20 years after his creation? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it was an incredible opportunity. I was obviously very nervous about it. X-Men Man of War number one was the very first issue of a monthly comic book I'd ever written. So I didn't, you know, it was a huge gamble for Valiant as well to, to allow me to go ahead and and be able to relaunch that character. I mean, in terms of relaunch Valiant, there were really four books that did it. There was X-Men of War, Archer and Armstrong, written by Fred Van Lente, mm. uh, Harbinger, which is a phenomenal title, written by Josh Dysart, and Bloodshot, which at the time was written by Dwayne Trzinski. And I don't know that there was a, 
a rhyme or reason to which title went first. Other than that, mine might have been the furthest along the track and ready to go, maybe, you know, because I had started earlier in terms of the pitch process. But even just being part of that original core group and none of us having any idea what's going to happen. I mean, comic book publishers launch and disappear overnight every year, pretty much. So Mm -hmm. none of us knew whether it was going to work out. But um, it was definitely an exciting time to be able to be part of launching a universe. I mean, that opportunity just doesn't come along very often. So uh, when I happened to be in the right place at the right time, I, I definitely jumped at the chance. As I say, like I said, we were talking in our intro about X-Men Man and War. We read some a lot of the stuff and leading up to this interview, and we're just like, I, I'm hooked. Like, I just can't stop. I can't put it, put it down. Like, there's, I had like a whole copy of books I just read in like one sitting. So and it's, it's really a great fish out of water kind of story in a sense. Um, so when you're doing those types of stories, how do you keep those fresh? You know what I'm saying? Instead of keep on reintroducing the same yeah. plot device, how do you keep those fresh as a writer and, and as you write different series, and it, but you're, talking, you're kind of covering similar plots? I think what, I, what I've tried to do with Exo Man of War is maintain that fish-out-of-water idea, but also the way I tried to approach the series is almost like an examination of heroism. Like, as an example, Braveheart. If we were to watch Braveheart, which is a very famous movie, obviously, and there's, oh, yes. there's a scene where uh, Braveheart takes this castle and he cuts off the head of the king and he, mar- he mails it to Edward the Longshanks in a mm-hmm. basket, right? Yeah. And as, as viewers, we're like, Heck yeah, Braveheart! You know, you go go ahead and mail that jerk off. Is his- <laughs> <laughs> you did Yogi Bear, Yogi Yogi Bear style? Exactly. Yeah, I guess he, you know, I was going to make a really bad joke, but I won't. Um, but, <laughs> we do that. We do that all the time, so to fit right in. You no, know, I could throw a little boo boo in there, but um, <laughs> but uh, by today's standards, right? If we're watching the news and something like that were to happen by one of our generals, that guy'd be prosecuted as a war criminal, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So how does our ideal of, of heroism evolve? Like Eric comes from a time where you get head in a basket to somebody and that made you a great leader. He came from a time where if you had the better army and the better weapons, you landed in the middle of Romania and you took it over because it used to be your homeland, right? Right. That's not the way the world is anymore. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you, show, you can show him being that way and, and not make him a savage. He's very noble and everything that he's doing, he's doing for right. It's just wrong by our standards today which aren't his standards and justifiably so. So I think the trick is to just show the fish out of water aspect, but do it in a way that he remains noble and not buffoonish and not like mm-hmm. what's a TV remote control or any kinds of things, you know, apply it to sort of more character based ideas and see how he reacts to something differently than we would, but do it in a way where we can still understand why he's doing what he's doing. And as, that's what I've tried to do with every single arc as I've gone through the series and even as we've seen him evolve from being somebody who would land in Romania and take it over to understanding now that that's not really the way this world works, but what is his place in that world? Exactly. And I want to follow up with this. In issue 39 of Exo Manowar, without spoiling anything, what kind of an impact will Frank's breakdown have on Gate as the series progresses? Yeah, that's going to harken back to Armor Hunters, which was uh, the previous event that I did for Valiant last summer where a team of aliens came to Earth to get the armor and ended up laying waste to a, you know Los Angeles and mm-hmm. Mexico City and some other locations as well. And uh, now GATE, which is a new uh, governmental organization that is, has been formed specifically to create what we now know are extraterrestrial threats out there in the universe, um, they're faced with another confrontation where aliens are coming to Earth again but this time they're actually coming in peace because they 
Eric is sort of their leader and they look up to him and they because he's the chosen one in their suit of armor and all these kinds of things. And they're coming here to just try to make a new world for themselves. But us on Earth, having been through an alien invasion with disastrous results, we immediately view it as something else. And so again, it's, it's just a matter of uh, making everybody's reactions believable and based in character and being able to relate with people on both sides of the equation. And, and as far as Frank, he's somebody who was in a part of the original uh, Battle of Los Angeles fighting against the aliens. Now he sees himself on the front line when these peaceful aliens show up. And uh, we find out that there's some scars from his original battle. And what's going to happen from there is going to really set the stage for the next 10 issues of the series. I think that there's you very brilliantly mirrored a almost post-traumatic stress disorder kind of thing with the Frank character. And I think the part of that was Rafa Sandoval, who's working on the book with you, did a great job with the art. How important is it as a writer for to work with an artist that can present exactly what you want to present in the visual form and with the words that are going on the page? Yeah, Rafa is phenomenal. I mean, I feel so lucky to be working with him too. And the crazy thing is he's really fast. Like, he turns in like a page or two pages a day. I mean, he does this stuff and it has such a such detail to it and so much emotion in the characters' faces, which is really the key to the entire thing and the believability, you know, the eyes and the expressions and being able to communicate the dialogue without having to say every word in the dialogue, mm. you know. Um, and Exo is not an easy book. I mean, you've got, you know, fifth century, you've got modern day, you've got aliens, you've got other planets, you've got here on Earth, you've got different cultures. So... There's a lot of different things to have to be able to tackle, and, and mm. he's somehow able to render it all in, in what is really beautiful. And I think that uh, 39, and he also did the wedding issue, which is number 38 that came out previously. Uh, they're two of my favorite issues of the entire series, and he, you know, he just finished 40, and it looks amazing as well. So uh, it really is uh, a great luxury to be able to work with somebody of his quality and his professionalism and, and to just have that great collaborative experience book. Definitely. And one of the things that I was actually a little bit surprised about because of how important this character is to the Valiant universe was then when Valiant announced their initial film slate that's going to be coming out, Exo Man of War actually wasn't a part of that. So how surprised were you that he kind of wasn't in that initial film slate? And when they do eventually get to it, what do you want to see out of an Exo Man of War movie? I mean, it's not surprising to me at all. I've, I've been through the whole film thing. I wrote a book as a creator-owned project called The Surrogates that was adapted into a film with Bruce Willis. So I've been through that entire process, and I know all the machinery that have to click in order for something like that to get off the ground. So I'm sure they're working on it behind the scenes. It's not anything that I'm really super aware of because mm -hmm. at no point do they ever come and say, hey, we're trying to sell a movie. Why don't you do this in the comic? You know, The comics are their own things. And they're working on the films differently. Which is but good. he is one of their marquee characters, and I'm sure they are working on it. And as far as what I would like to see, I, I would really just, more than anything, like to see the treatment of him as a character being, like I said before, you know, he's very noble. He's a, he's a hero who has found himself in the wrong time. You know, he's not uh, Encino Man. You know what I mean? He's, oh, definitely he's, not. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's... <laughs> Uh, Maximus from Gladiator, but finding himself in the modern day and having to deal with the modern world. You know what I mean? Oh, saying? yeah. So um, that, as long as they preserve that, I think they'll be fine with everything else. So, Robert, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at, at Robert Vendetti. I also have a professional Facebook page, you know, just listed under Robert Vendetti. 
Well, we want to let people know that Exo Man of War, as of you hearing this right now, is in stores right now. Exo Man of War number 39. Book of Death number 2 is going to hit stores next week on August the 19th. And of course, of course, Robert also has Fall of Exo Man of War that's going to be coming out in October. So Robert Venditti, writer extraordinaire for Valiant Entertainment and more. Thank you so much for being on with us this week. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Wow, what an awesome interview. I mean, all our interviews are great, but I mean, to hear that Valiant has a writer's room. News to me. Yeah. News to me. I mean, I mean, you kind of assume, because we've talked about Valiant, uh, you know, they have certain people that write certain books, and, you know, that's that's true for most publishers, but it seems like they pick a guy and stick with him sort of thing. Yeah. So to hear that and know that all these great writers are part of a writer's room and collaborate on these major arcs, all that tells me is that's why it's working then. Yeah, right? You know? I mean, it, it just works. It's like, again, it's like, you know, we're sitting in the room together just saying, you know, punching holes in each other's ideas, seeing how we can make it better and make it work and everything else. And it, it's like a film set pretty much. I mean, yeah. it's right, you know, that's what it is. It's like, okay, how can we build this great thing and make it work? And I think this is something that, you know, Marvel and DC should look at what Valiant's doing and see it as they're right. You know, why don't we have a writer's room for the, you know, for something like this, you know, and we haven't heard about them having mm-hmm. anything like that for a major arc because you're tying in so much. So why not have all the writers from the series just come together and do like an arc, you know? It goes back to what we talked about in previous episodes about having the bullpen and having that ability to just collaborate like that. And I'm, and I'm not saying that DC and Marvel don't do that. But clearly this is a concerted effort to make sure everything and everyone is on the same page. And I think for Valiant, it's showing not just in Book of Death, but in the sales now that are trickling down to every other book that Valiant has out. I think that that is, a, that is great to know. Exactly. Speaking of trickling down, the minutes have trickled down to near the end of this week's podcast. We just want to thank Valiant and Robert Venditti for coming on this week's show this week and talking about Book of Death and Exo Man of War. And just go pick those books up when you can. They're great, great writing, great, great art. Now, you can hit us up on social media as well. You can hit us up at Donnery757 on the Twitter. Also, Facebook.com slash Donnery. I'm on Twitter at Merc with One Arm. James. And I'm at James Ace with them. And don't forget, we're online where you can find all the stuff we just talked about. Just go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Exactly. All you need to do, it's all there. That's how you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash downandnerdy. That's how you can find our Twitter. Yeah, you can find this week's show. Every week this week's show, it'll tell you what's going to be on nerd news and everything. So you can find out what's coming up. Bookmark it. You'll never miss another show or anything else that we have going on. That's per- That's pretty much the way you want to do it. Exactly. When you click this week, the This Week link on our website, again, downnerdypodcast.com, at the bottom we'll have links to where you can buy yes. Book of Death and Exo Man of War. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do for all of our uh, people, who, you know, guests who come out who are writers and artists. We put a link to all their stuff so you can go buy it. It's all through our own Amazon store, so you can go through – Help out the, our 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 friends who come on this week on the show and 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 promote their stuff. And again, thanks to Rob for coming on. But as always, I leave you with this: comic book nerds, always passive comic book reading, always bag and board your comics.